0: In the history of the church, there have been many revivals that have taken place. I think probably the most famous, the one we're most um, familiar with, is that revival that took place in the early church. Just 50 days after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, there was a, a gathering of people in Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And Peter, being filled with the Spirit, preached about Christ whom you crucified And uh, the people were pricked in their conscience. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And 3,000 people, repented of their sins, were baptized that day, brought into the church. Within a few days, the number of the church was up to 5,000 people who believed in the Messiah. It was a a revival that took place. Just 5,000 people added to the church, just like that. During the days of Jonathan Edwards, another revival took place. It's called the, the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards is a preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts. Connecticut, Massachusetts, I forget. Northampton, Connecticut, I think is what it is. And uh, he was a pastor there for a couple years, preaching to no effect in many ways. But then in 1734, through his continued ministry, almost monotone-like, long, extensive sermons, people began to crumble under his preaching, conservative churches, people had emotional outbursts and radical change of action, change in their lives. People were awakened to their sin, their need for Christ. Many who had been lukewarm before now were living all for Jesus. And, and the next. Three years, just God's Spirit just moved simultaneously all across Massachusetts, all across Connecticut. It's called the First Great Awakening. George Whitefield then rode the crest of that wave when he traveled over from England to preach here. Many people were converted to Christ in that short period of time. Revival broke out. Revival broke out in 1858 in New York. A man named Jeremiah Lamphere started a prayer meeting. In lower Manhattan, on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1857, we started this prayer meeting. First day, first Wednesday, noontime. There were um, six people who attended. By the next week, there were 20. By the next week, there were 40. Soon, the meetings, which often were held weekly at noon, became daily meetings. By February of 1858, three separate rooms, were needed to accommodate all the people coming to prayer at noontime. By mid-March, prayer was moved to Burton's Theater in Manhattan and included 3,000 people By April, scores of buildings, printer shops, fire stations, police stations, all opened weekly for this purpose of praying. So much so they had to have a bulletin out that said, you know, announced where these prayer meetings would be. And many gatherings were converted through these prayer meetings. The outpouring of the Spirit of God within just a few months' time exploded in people repenting of their sins and following Christ. Modern day example, we've seen that in the 1990s. College students stood up, confessed their sins to their fellow students, and revival broke out. Perhaps you remember this. 1995 started Wednesday, January 22nd at Coggin Avenue Baptist Church in Brownwood, Texas. Two college students stood before the congregation Wednesday night, prayer meeting I suppose. I'm not sure exactly what the service was, but they stood up and confessed their sins, and news kind of got around. And that chapel, their Christian school, that next Sunday night, They confessed their sins again and and this time scores of students started coming down, flooding the aisles to stand up and confess their sins as well. And the revival spread to many other college campuses across the land. Dozens and dozens of campuses. These students who experienced that just went and and confessed their sins in other campuses and similar outbreakings took place. Notable among them was a revival that took place at Wheaton College, Darren. Probably heard about that, probably talked about some people. Who were there? Sunday evening, March 19, 1995. Students came into Pierce Chapel at 7:30 p.m. 900 students gathered, and the student came from Texas to just talk about what happened. They sang some songs, began to confess their sins, and finally, by 6 o'clock the next morning, the custodial staff kicked everybody out. All 400 who were still there, saying that you know we need to clean the building because classes are going to start here the next day. They filled five large garbage bags with alcohol, tobacco, drugs, pornography, secular music. Many people confessed their sins, turned to Christ. Subsequent meetings were held not only on the campus, but they went to Wheaton College Church where there were 2,000 people could attend, gathered to confess their sins to one another. And I remember I had a chance there was a Wheaton College student came out to northern Illinois. I was living in DeKalb at that time and similar similar experience had. Maybe not to the breadth, but just confession of sins there. I was probably going to gather 200 students and... Confession of sin, confession of sin. The the Holy Spirit was being poured out at that time. It was a powerful experience. Now how do you explain these things? How do you explain Pentecost? How do you explain the Great Awakening? How do you explain the prayer revival in New York in 1858? How do you explain these college arisings of revival? You know what? You can't. You can't explain them. It's only the Sovereign Spirit working of God that works that way. The Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and the judgment have come. They find their only hope is in Christ. And they turn from their sins. And they, they follow Jesus. And many come into the church. And many are come to be believers. And, and the examples of what I told here, I've only given you four examples, mostly United States, mostly more modern history, but with the truth be known, there are, are many, many, many more examples, many of which I know nothing about, many of which I do know something about. I just don't have the time to tell you. I've read books on revival. It just talks about the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It's an exciting thing. And these things take taking place not only in America, not only in England, but all across the world. Uh, I'm sure that someday perhaps the truth will come out about China and what's really happening there. I, I got an email this week that said 120 million Christians in China right now. And they're all persecuted Christians, so they're probably... Real Christians, because you don't become a Christian in a persecuted country. It's real and authentic. And and the stories, many of which probably will never be able to be told, but stories probably of hundreds and thousands being converted, just that God is faithful there. But of all these instances of revival taking place, none of them even come close to what we're going to look at today in Jonah chapter 3. 750 years before the birth of Christ, we're going to see more than 100,000 people turn from their sin and God forgives them. This is the greatest revival the world has ever known. We're going to study today. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. It's a great text. My sermon this morning is entitled, Nineveh Receives Mercy. Nineveh receives mercy. That's what this is about. It's about Nineveh turning, repenting of their sin, and receiving the, the great mercy of, of God. We pick it up here in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes, He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and its nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger, so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. This text breaks down nicely into three sections based upon the subject of who is being talked about. In the first four verses, we see Jonah being the subject. In verses 5-9, through nine it's Nineveh who is the subject. And verse 10, it's God who's the subject. So the three natural divisions of this text are three points of my outline. My first point is this. Jonah repents. Verses 1 through 4. Now technically this isn't so much the account of Jonah repenting, but it is the fruit of his repentance. I believe he repented was shortly before he was nabbed by the fish. But this is a, the fruit of his repentance. We're going to see it right here. In verse, chapters 1 and 2, we see Jonah refusing the call of God upon his life. And now in chapter 3, we see Jonah submitting himself to the Lord's instructions. And, and what's interesting is if you compare verses 1 and 2 with chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you'll find very little difference. In fact, go back there. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. And now, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. The spirit of these verses is identical. In many places of these are exactly the same. In both instances, it describes the word of the Lord which comes to Jonah. Right? That is a divine summons. God is summoning Jonah. We see also that in both cases, God calls Jonah to arise. That is, get up. Stop from your seat. Let's get up. Stand up. Start moving. And then He says in both of them, He says, go to Nineveh. He identifies the same city. Travel there. Move yourself from where you are to get to Nineveh. In both of them also we see that God identifies in the of us the great city, the large, influential city. In both of these calls, we find that it follows a summons to speak out against the city. One says to proclaim to it. The other says cry against it. It's the same Hebrew word. It's call out against it. Call towards it. Cry out. Go preach to these people is what the summons says. And then when you look at the, the differences between these, they're all, they're all minor. And first of all, chapter 1, verse 1, we see the Jonah identified as the son of Amittai. He's not identified that in chapter 3, verse 1, but we already know that. So that's really excusable. In chapter 1, we see the sin of Nineveh being emphasized. I mean, that's the reason why this proclamation needs to take place, because the sin of Nineveh has come up before him. Whereas in chapter 3, verse 2, the emphasis is more on the message that will be proclaimed. Go and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. God didn't promise a message back in chapter 1. But the spirit of these two things is, is all exactly the same. And it is appropriate that this is the second time, as it says in chapter 3, verse 1, it's the word that came the second time to Jonah. Almost exactly the same. But, but as we get to verse 3, though, of chapter 1, and get to verse 3 of chapter 3, that's where things start to, to detour greatly. Vast difference. It's different between the night and the day in chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. He's going to Tarshish, getting away from Nineveh. In chapter 3, verse 3, we see But Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In chapter 1, we find Jonah fleeing away to the remotest part of the world, southern Spain. And in chapter 3, we see him following the Lord's command to a T traveling to Nineveh where he brings the message to them. I've identified this as Jonah's repentance. I mean, rather than disobeying the Lord and re- running from Him, Jonah is now running towards the Lord in obedience to Him. That is what repentance is, right? It's a turning from sin and a turning to God. Turning is a good word for it. That's what Jonah did. Rather than going this way, he went this way at one point he was disobedient, now he's walking in obedience to the Lord. And this is what God always has called everyone to do. He calls all people everywhere to repent, to call upon Him in a time when He may be found, to turn from their sins, forsake our sins, and to follow Him. That's what it means to believe. right? When you, when you believe in God, it means you trust Him in every way and you forsake those things of your life and you just entrust them to To God, that's what Jesus said, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. So God says, forsake your soul, forsake your life. And follow after me. It's a call of repentance. See so what we see Jonah doing. So what's Jonah's sin? What's, what's his sin? His sin was they refused God's call to preach. He refused God's call to open his mouth. And I think about how applicable that is for us. I, mean, I think about one of the most difficult things for me is to be faithful in sharing the Gospel with unbelievers that are around me. It takes effort to share the Gospel with my neighbors and to be bold with them. How easy it is to remain silent when a few words need to be spoken. I just think about you. other people in your lives, your influence, people at work, people in your family, people in your extended family, maybe people in your own home when you need to obey the Lord and, and, and be vocal and to speak? So that's what Jonah turned from. He said, I don't want to talk to those people. He went and get away. He's calling us To talk. Oh, may God give us the grace to boldly speak for Him. If you want to be helped in that, maybe some some books in our library. Tell the truth. This is a great book uh, on evangelism, telling the whole message, the whole gospel to the whole person by whole people. Just message and methods of witnessing in a God centered way. Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman. This is a great book just talks about how Christ evangelized the nations, how He focused upon that. And then even here in Nineveh, we think about missionaries, missionaries of the nations. Be glad, John Piper. It's a great book just to, 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 to really get a heart for the nations. I mean, missions exist because worship doesn't, is what John Piper says. And if you want a heart, maybe these books might help you to have more of a heart for people. You're praying on your face you might give a heart for people. It might just reach out to them with the Gospel of Christ. Well, the good news is this. Maybe you failed in the past, but God gives us a second opportunity. Over the next few weeks or months, you might have an opportunity to go to your Nineveh. We'd you be like Jonah as he was in chapter 1, or we'd be like Jonah as he was in chapter 3. God gave Jonah a second opportunity because the word came to Jonah the second time. First time he headed off to Tarshish. God says, no, that's not acceptable. And he pursued him, setting a storm upon the sea. Directing the lot so as to fall upon Jonah by throwing him overboard. By appointing a great fish to swallow Jonah and to bring him safely to dry land. That was God's pursuit of him to bring him back to the second opportunity now that he has. And he obeyed the second time. And I just say, what changed? What changed the second time that he obeyed? Because I think this is key. If we think about what we failed before in the past... What, what's going to change so that I might walk rightly in the future? Well, did God change? God didn't change, no. Did God's call change? No, it was still the call to go to Nineveh. It was still the call to go and cry out against Nineveh. Did the people of Nineveh change? No, they didn't become more lovable. You're exactly right, KV. They didn't become lovable. They were still involved in their wicked behavior. Still the enemies of Israel. So what changed? Jonah changed. In chapter 1, he changed because he experienced the pursuing hand of God. He knew that try as he might, he couldn't run from God. In chapter 2, he experienced the chastening of God. Almost drowning. almost That, that far from death, as we saw last week. He experienced the merciful hand of God. Chastening and the merciful hand. And I think these are the two things that change us. God changes us through chastening, His disciplining hand. We stray from Him and He disciplines us. Like Hebrews chapter 12 says, we ought to rejoice in that because it identifies us as His true Son. And it brings us back. Isn't that how you deal with your children? Right, You discipline them for disobedience and you train them in the way of righteousness. God does the same thing. And that that helps change us. So when the disciplining hand of God comes upon us, we ought not to sorrow at that, but rejoice because we know what the discipline is going to do for us in the future. There's also another agent of change. Another agent of change is mercy. When you experience the merciful hand of God, you change. When you see and think about all that Christ has done for our souls, that is a great motivator to change. In like that's probably the, the best motivator to change. And that's what Jonah experienced. God's mercy in the stomach of the fish. He knew that salvation was of the Lord. And these things will change you. God's chastening and God's mercy. You need to love these things. And you'll have another opportunity. And I say this because the Bible's flooded with other people, other saints who had other opportunities to serve the Lord. Moses received a second chance. He tried to take matters in his own hands and and killed an Egyptian because he was persecuting a fellow Hebrew. He found out about that and he was exiled to Midian for 40 years. But God gave him a second opportunity to come back and lead the people of Israel safely safely out of slavery. David received a second chance. He blew it royally with Bathsheba and the kingdom was taken away from him. When Absalom usurped the throne... Yet God in His grace brought him back into the throne. Let him reign as king. Manasseh got a second chance. Uh, Of all the kings of Judah, he was by far the most wicked. Fifty-five years reigning in Judah and putting forth sinful regulations, worship, idolatry, and then God finally got His attention by taking him away and putting him in a Babylonian prison where he repented of his sins. And God restored him to reign and rule in Judah again. Peter received a second chance after saying, I won't deny you, Lord. I won't deny you, Lord. These little, little girls around the fire he was timid of and denied Christ three times, vehemently swearing that he didn't know Jesus. But later on, Jesus restored Peter. John Mark received a second chance in the first missionary journey he went with Paul and Barnabas and deserted him. But later on, had an opportunity to prove himself to be faithful. So in the end, 2 Timothy 4, Paul said, He is useful to me for service. Though once he had failed, he had a second opportunity and turned to the Lord. So make most of your second opportunities you have. Discern the chastening hand of God upon your life. Rejoice in the mercy of God and love sharing it with others. Now in verse 3, we see Jonah in his obedience. This is great. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. How good it is to obey the Lord. And I'm sure as he was going, he was smiling. He says, I'm doing it right. This is what God says. Every step of the way, I'm sure he was happy that he was obeying the Lord. Because obedience brings blessing. It brings happiness. And we see in verse 3, the description of Nineveh. It says, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three days walk. This is the third time in the book of Jonah that Nineveh is described as being a great city. first time is in chapter 1, verse 2. Nineveh, the great city. And then in chapter 3, verse 2. Nineveh, the great city. And we're going to see it again. Chapter 4, verse 11. Nineveh, the great city. Only here it's not the great city. It is the exceedingly great city. Or as the NIV says, a very important city. Literally, it's the, the great city to God. Just kind of... Amping it up a little bit. It is a, it is a very great city. You say, what made it great? Well, it was great in every way. It was great in population. We see more than 120,000 people in it, according to chapter 4, verse 11. We see it was great in wickedness. We've already talked quite a bit about that, of how wicked these people were in Nineveh. It was great in size. And I think that's what Jonah is primarily talking about here, because the next phrase talks about how, how long it takes to go through the city. It's a 3 days walk you try to figure out exactly what that means, and you'll be a bit confused, but it's a big city is what it means. Uh, Excavations have shown that that there are two walls in Nineveh. The first was a huge inner wall, 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. That's huge. Huge, fortified city. And outside of that, there was a a second wall that enclosed some fields and small towns. It wasn't quite so big, but according to an ancient historian, the wall was 60 miles around. And if you know anything about walking in those days, or if you walk at a good pace, a day's journey is how many miles? About 20 miles? So 60 miles about a three days journey around the entire city. That's how big Nineveh was. It was a gigantic, well fortified city in Bible times. During the days of Jonah, the, the, the capital of Israel, Samaria, had about 30,000 people in it. And, it. and it was tight and small because it was more up nestled in the hills. But with Nineveh, the cities of the Mesopotamian plain, where Nineveh was, there was little to prevent it from expanding. It's a little bit like Rockford. We can just expand and expand and expand and expand because it's all flat but up in the hills and mountains it's a little bit more difficult. There's a great city. A three days walk probably around it. It would take a long time to go through all the the cities in every place. In verse 4 we see Jonah, first day, going through his ministry. It's a one day's walk is what it says. He began to go through the city, one day's walk. And while he went through, this is like his first day of, of ministry, he was going through and saying, Ode! Arbraim Yom. Vanineveh Nepeket." That's what you're saying. Oldld, Arbrahim Yod. Vaniniveh Nepeket. Old, Arbrahim Yod, Vaniniveh Nepeket." That's what he's saying. Five words in the Hebrew. It's rightly translated, yet, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now we don't know fully what he was doing. Maybe he's just walking through the streets just crying out. I suppose at various instances he went and got his, his stool or stood up, found a crowd and then spoke to them. And we don't know if this is all he said. I, I sort of doubted it. I think the Bible oftentimes includes sermons which are, are more representative of what's being said. You look at the life of Christ and sometimes when there are two sermons that don't exactly match, it's because he said both of those things. He said all those things together. Oftentimes, messages are are more outlines, but it's accurate, exactly what he said. And Jonah's message to Nineveh was that destruction is on the way. Destruction's coming, that's what he said. He may have illustrated it, may have told them of their wickedness, may have said how bad they were, so destruction is coming. In verse 2, we see that God promised to give Jonah the proclamation which he would tell them. We don't know if Jonah was really faithful to that message. Push comes to shove, I think probably Jonah spoke half a message. Because throughout the Bible, characteristic of God's message is always these two sides. Yes, judgment is coming, but there's hope. Judgment's coming, but there's hope. There is the law that condemns, but the Gospel comes freely. When Isaiah came preaching, he called Israel by name Sodom and Gomorrah to tell them how wicked they were. And then he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of a land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured. Jonah's, Jeremiah's message was the same. He said, Return, faithless Israel. I will not look upon you in anger. Meaning the implication is, I'm looking upon you now in anger. But return, and I won't. For I'm gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Jeremiah's call. Repentance. Repentance. You'll be forgiven. It's true of the New Testament too. John the Baptist gave this illustration. Matthew chapter 3. It says the axe is already laying at the root of the tree. It's ready to chop them down. It's like you've seen it in an axer. You know he's ready. He's eyeing it up. And he's just ready to chop And John the Baptist says, Therefore, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? You bear good fruit and you won't be chopped down. If you don't bear good fruit, you will be chopped down. There's hope if you repent. Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was only when Israel refused to repent that Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. The implication is that they, they didn't repent and so God is done with them. Give it to Gentiles. So we get grafted into the olive tree. And yet even there, Romans 11 says, don't you get too proud and righteous yourself. I can easily bring them back in again. But that's, that's the message God always gives. All His Bible, judgment is coming but there's hope in Him. But Jonah's message only contained half of it, I think. I think he only preached half a message that God had given him to preach. He teach, preached judgment and not hope. In some ways, this might cast doubts upon Jonah's repentance. He had a hard heart towards Nineveh, the wicked city, which we'll look at next week as we see how he hates the mercy that was given to them. But but if you look hard enough, you will find some mercy in Jonah's message, though. Od Aravaim Yom, yet 40 days. There is mercy there. It shows a, a period of God's mercy. I mean, sending Jonah was God's mercy to tell them of this upcoming judgment, but also to give them a 40-day waiting period. I mean, if God had desired to destroy the city, he could, have, he could have destroyed it right now. There's no need to wait for 40 days. But the waiting period was a, a tiny window of hope. And they banked on this hope. As we see in my second point, Verses five through nine, Nineveh repents. We've seen Jonah's repentance. Now we see Nineveh's repentance, and this is where this is where it gets good. Nineveh clings to whatever little hope they might find with a message brought to them by Jonah. A strange prophet from Israel. Oftentimes people talk about an experience of three days and three nights in a fish and what it would have done to the skin. You know, this funny looking creature. Foreigner, coming in. What's he saying? And they re- repent. We see the response of the people in verse 5. After they heard this message, about yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It said that the people of Nineveh believed in God. They believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Meaning that they all believed this message. It's important to see how they viewed Jonah's message. They saw it as coming from the mouth of God. It wasn't Jonah that they believed. It was God that they believed. And I don't think that's a subtle point. I think this is the point that when Jonah spoke, it was as if God was speaking through Jonah. And that's a dynamic of those who genuinely repent. Listen, when people repent, they hear someone talking and, and they recognize and they hear it because the Spirit of God within them is convicting them of their sin and they hear it and they recognize that that's not just this guy speaking. That is, that's a message from the Almighty. And it's coming to me. And I recognize that. So it's the reality of the voice of God. I need to respond to my message. I respond to that message that I heard. This guy's speaking. And that's what took place here in Jonah. Sorry, we need to be Bible people. I remember one time, I had a friend who talked a long, long time, many, many months, long before I was ever a pastor, talking about Christ and the Bible and... This man was just filled with tons and tons of questions and he asked questions. And I always, I always thought to just give a biblical response, just whatever the Bible says is this. And I remember one time he was kind of angry with me. He said, I don't care what the Bible, I want to know what you think. And I always said, well, this is what the Bible says. And uh, he, he didn't like that, but that's, that's how it is and that's how I, I want to be in my ministry. It's why I... I try to stay so close to scriptures. Let the scripture come out because I believe that's where the power is. Because as it comes out there, I know that's the voice of God, and I'll trust that God's word isn't going to return void as He promised in Isaiah 55:11. And we need to, as we speak with our neighbors and our friends and our family members, make sure that we are biblical in speaking the words of the Bible. That it might come out because we have no authority apart from the scriptures. So use our phraseology. May it come from the Bible. Let our thoughts and our concepts be all there, because God has promised to bless His Word. Pity the people who are following the words of a preacher. but Rejoice in the power of the people who are following the words of God, right? So Jonah was speaking the, God's words, and they recognized it, and they, they believed and they repented, right? That's what putting on, calling a fast and putting on sackcloth is. These are outward signs of repentance mentioned often in the Bible. The idea of both of them is that you're showing a, a sorrow for your sin. A fast, I'm not going to eat, so I'm going to realize I'm, I'm dependent upon the Lord for my daily sustenance. That's what a fast is. Sackcloth is identifying yourself with the poor and the lowly, and the prisoners and the slaves, the needy people. Saying, I am a needy person, O Lord. That's what both these things are saying. The Ninevites knew that they were sinners. They knew they needed repentance. Jonah's words were what they needed to hear, and their response was a spontaneous outcry: "Let us fast! Let us seek God!" I think they understood that Nineveh is going to be overthrown, not by a, another nation; they're going to be overthrown by God. Maybe it's going to be overthrown like the Assyrians. God destroyed 186,000 Assyrians on one night with the angel of the Lord. Assyrians destroyed? <laughs> Maybe they knew or thought about. Could have been destroyed. So they sought God for His protection. And word spread rapidly. This is still the first day of his ministry, I believe. Word spread rapidly all around. They didn't have the internet that day. They didn't have spam emails. It was house to house talking. Probably running faster than Jonah was going. Word eventually reached the king of Nineveh. It's probably Asher Dan third. If we get our dates right with Jonah, he too believed in God. And like the people, he too humbled himself. It says there that He was sitting on His throne, right, ruling and reigning over the nation. It says He rose from His throne and He takes His robe off. He lays it aside. And then He too covers Himself with sackcloth and He sat on the ashes. just sat in repentance, probably sorrow, with His head down. Oh, whoa! As He got up from His throne, He was saying, you know what, my earthly power is not what's significant here. He laid aside his royal roan saying, I I don't need this imperial power. I need to be down and identify myself with the people. It's a great act of humility. Oh, for a leader who would do that, right? Repentance is always associated with a sign of humility. Then he uses royal power to enact a decree commanding the entire city to repent. He says in verse 7, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, And so maybe he's down here on his ashes and he's talking to his other noble there on the ashes says, dictate for me. Here's our decree. By the authority invested in me, by the decree his, the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Jonah, one day into his ministry, already his message captured the heart of the entire city. The people believed, the king believed, the entire city was called the fasting and humiliation. You know, I think about the decree of the king and it's a bit like what President Bush did. Two days after the terrorist attack on our our nation upon New York, he issued a a decree and... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but some of it, he stood up before our whole nation... And he said this, Scripture says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. He says, I call on every American family and the family of America to deserve a national day of prayer and remembrance, honoring the memory of the thousands of victims, these brutal attacks, and comforting those who lost loved ones. We will persevere through this national tragedy and personal loss. In time, we will find healing and recovery, and in the face of all this evil, we remain strong and united, one nation under God. And then he said, this is the royal decree, Now I, therefore, George W. Bush, President of the United States of America, by the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim Friday, September 14, 2001, as the National Day of Prayer and Remembrance for the victims of the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. I ask that the people of the United States and places of worship mark this National Day of Prayer and Remembrance with noontime memorial services, with the ringing of the bells at this hour and even candlelight remembrance vigils. I encourage employers to permit their workers time off during the lunch hour to attend noontime services, to pray for our land. I invite the people of the world who share our grief to join us in these solemn observances. Remember hearing of that decree or that day? Some of you may. I I, I remember that day. I watched the memorial service that noon. I was in the walls of a church that evening praying for our nation. Likewise, if if you'd ask anyone from Nineveh, do you remember where you were on that day when the issue of the decree came forth? You know, some of the kids I remember that day. It was weird. We took these cows and we we covered them with this sackcloth. And, you know, we, we wouldn't let it. I was hungry and Dad didn't let me eat. And we cried out to this unknown God I'd never heard about before. It would have been strange for the kids. The adults would have understood what they would have done. And they could have told you about what took place and how we didn't do chores that night because we didn't give our, our animals their food or their water. They could have told you how they attended a prayer meeting that night and confessed their sin that they repented of. It. And you see these people. It's interesting that the Ninevites, they didn't know much I mean, for them, I think it was somewhat superstitious to involve their, their, their beasts in their repentance. Like, yeah, we're going to repent today. We're not going to feed Fido. It's kind of what they were doing. They, they were just not feeding their, their livestock, covering them, making life hard and difficult for them, as if maybe animals were praying, which they didn't pray. But I think it was just a sign of solemn, solemn repentance that was just thorough. That wasn't just people. But people were engaged in this. It says, Let men call on God earnestly. These are probably prayer meetings, right? Praying and, and pleading to the Lord. And, and they probably didn't know much about God. I mean, this isn't Israel. All right? This is Nineveh, the wicked nation who, who had multitudes of gods involved in immorality, had no examples of godliness, and they were calling on God earnestly. And they were turning from their wicked way. I mean, These were a wicked people repenting of their sin, just like on the college campuses in 1990, turning from them, confessing them. And, and here's, here's the amazing thing. With no promise, that the Lord would repeal His sentence. Zero promise. In fact, you see that. And this is why Jonah's message, I think, was all condemnation and no mercy. Well, a little bit of mercy. Forty days was mercy. But very little mercy. No promise. Look at how the king reasons in verse 9. Still his summons. Still his decree. He says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. In other words, we we have no promise from God. He has said he will destroy us in forty days, and we believe it. We have been a violent and wicked people. We deserve to be destroyed for our sin, and yet we can't merely sit back and remain idle while the livelihood of our cities at stake. Let us at least make an effort to thwart what's our coming doom. Let's at least humble ourselves before the Lord and just see if, quite, just perchance, He might possibly show some mercy to us. It may just be that God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. That, my friends, is repentance. See, there's a, 2 Corinthians 7 talks about a, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Worldly repentance is this, I was caught, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Godly repentance says, that act is evil in and of itself. I don't care the consequences. Uh, I just It's wrong. The one is all concerned about repercussions. The other, the, the righteous one, is concerned about just what sin is before God. And so likewise here, with, with no carrot in front of them promising safety if they perform these deeds... No assurance of God that they'll be safe if they do X, Y, and Z. No promise of preservation. Their only hope is in the mercy of God. And God was merciful to them. We see in verse 10, God relents. Jonah repents, Nineveh repents, and God relents. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, which, by the way, is why Nineveh was so different than the United States. We've carried on just as has been always. But Nineveh repented. They changed their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He'd bring upon them and He did not do it. Now the Old King James Version translates this, and God repented of the evil that He had said He would do unto them. How nice would that have outlined been, right? Jonah repents, Nineveh repents, God repents. But relents is pretty close, alright? But I, I, I didn't use repents because it doesn't quite represent what God did and can be, can be strewed in the wrong way. Because when we hear the word repentance, we think rightly. Repentance is turning away from evil to do righteousness. And that's what repentance is, right? turn away from evil and turn to righteousness. But... God wasn't turning away from evil in the sense He was turning away from from unrighteousness. Had God destroyed Nineveh, it would have been perfectly righteous anger. His actions would have been perfectly just. A wicked nation deserves punishment from the hand of the Almighty. But in, in light of their actions, God showed forth His compassion and mercy upon Nineveh. And that's how the NIV translates this verse, which I think is good. God had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Compassion is a good idea. You can almost push this word even to pity. God relented because he had compassion upon them, he pitied them. They had nowhere else to turn. They turned to the Lord, and God was gracious. He saw their deeds. He tested their deeds. He saw they turned from their wicked way and God didn't bring upon them the destruction that He promised. Now the theological question always comes up now. Right? Well, did God change His mind regarding Nineveh? The Scriptures speak on the one hand, God is not a man that He should lie nor a son of man that He should repent. As He said and will He not do it as He spoke and will He not make it good? Numbers twenty-three nineteen. Or another passage, the glory of Israel will not lie or change His mind. So you got these theological statements set up juxtaposed to what God actually did here in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Say, did God change his mind? I say, No, he didn't change his mind. Rather, God's message to Nineveh was a conditional message. That's what I believe took place. Though Jonah presented only half of the story, the truth of the matter is that God's judgments upon man are often conditional. Conditional upon how we respond. And His blessings, by the way, also sometimes are conditional as well. The key passage, Jeremiah eighteen seven through 10 Listen carefully. At one moment, God speaking, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, pull down, or destroy it. If that nation against which I, against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring upon it. Or another time, I might speak concerning a nation concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. You see there, is the, the conditional promises that often come down in the Bible. And I think that's Jonah's message. It's a conditional promise. It's going to be destroyed in 40 days. all they heard. Though from God's standpoint, it was, unless you repent. See, God is a merciful God. And in Nineveh, we see God's mercy. The people of Nineveh were sinners in the worst way. I mean, they were wicked and rebellious antagonistic. And they, um, modern day Nineveh is Mosul. You know what country Mosul is in? Iraq. Right? I mean, they were Iraqis. Muslim Iraqis. Right? Simple haters of God where Christians are persecuted today. That's very typical about what they were like back then. But imagine, right? Baghdad repenting of their sin and crying out to Christ. That's what took place. And if Baghdad repented, God says, I'm not going to destroy Baghdad. I'm not going to destroy Mosul. And he didn't. He relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he'd bring upon them. And he did not do it. And I just say this, church family, that would the truth be known, that's, that's the only reason we're saved from our sin. It's because of the mercy of God, right? And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for our sins. We deserve to be Nineveh destroyed. We deserve Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone coming down upon us. We deserve the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. is how that verse ends. Salvation comes to us through Christ's gift. We don't earn it in any way. It's bestowed freely on all who believe. It's a great promise of the Gospel that we proclaim Believe in Christ and you will have eternal life. And to those who would forsake all and believe and, and cling to Him. It's His only hope. He's the only way, the truth and the light. You cling to Him and your sins will be forgiven and you'll be made righteous before Him. And I just think about this. How different we stand compared with the people of Nineveh. right? They received a half-message from a half-hearted prophet With no promises at all from a God they barely knew and yet they still repented the first time they heard the message. Every single one of those statements is so different than us. Think about that: Jonah gave half the story. Just told them where the destruction would come. No divine promises. Jonah, I think, was half-hearted in it. Everything that we know about Jonah, yes, he was repenting and doing what was right, but I don't think he had his... His heart engaged Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Where kids obey the letter of the law, but in their heart, they're not there. I think in some sense that is Jonah. And we see him angry. In verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He became angry that his preaching worked. I don't know of any pastor in the world who would preach a sermon, see 120,000 people done with Christ, and then be angry at God and showing His mercy. Such is the hard-heartedness of Jonah, I think he was he was half-hearted. I don't think he was a bold preacher. I, I don't think that he thought, okay, you know, his 550-mile journey to Nineveh was thinking, hmm, how can I reach this city? I need to strategize. Where's, okay, where's the band I'm going to get? And where's the where's the big attraction? And where's where's the puppet show that's going to come on? And where's the, the this and that? Where's it going to be this big screen? Where's the pyrotechnics? And how am I going to massage my message so it's soft so that a lot of people will come? And how am I going to like attract people? How am I going to get all this? <laughs> I don't. Jonah was, I think, pretty anti-revival. I don't want him to repent. Okay, I'll do God's deed. I'll just say, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I'll just say that. Kind of maybe quietly. Maybe maybe just to the kids. Who knows? But well, I love this, that revival broke out. Don't you? I mean, so often we can think about revival is all the plan of Man. But it's not. Revival is in the hand of the Lord and He does whatever He does. Hopefully this gives you encouragement in your evangelism. You don't have to have a perfect message. Your heart doesn't have to be even fully engaged. They don't even need to know much about God. You just need to speak a little bit and God and His Spirit will run very well with that. You should be encouraged by that. But Jonah wasn't. I think it was a miracle that took place. I think of all the miracles in Jonah, this is by far the greatest miracle is that Jonah, this reluctant prophet, brings a message and they all they all repent? As I bring my message to a close and we then transition to Lord's Supper, I want you to turn again to Matthew chapter twelve. We were there last week because it was mentioned about Jonah being in the stomach of the fish. I want to bring it out again because I didn't quite finish the passage. I stopped at verse forty. Because that was last week, that was Jonah chapter 2, but 41 is Jonah chapter 3. Matthew 12, some of the scribes, verse 38, and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Like, really prove it who you are, Jesus. But he'd already healed many. In fact, they'd already said he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. They'd already seen him cast out demons, they'd already seen signs. Their heart was hard. Jesus said, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Oh, beware Pentecostal charismatic churches seeking for a sign. is dangerous, dangerous. And yet no sign will be given to it but for the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was Jonah 2. Now comes Jonah 3. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh were walking in darkness They knew little about God. They had no Sunday school in Nineveh. They had no church in Nineveh. They had no Scriptures in Nineveh. They had no teachers in Nineveh. They had no godly examples in Nineveh. I say, what about you? Many of you grew up in church. Sunday schools, memorized verses, godly examples of parents, teachers... The Ninevita, Nineveh knew little about God, yet they still repented. The people of Nineveh heard the message once, and they repented. How many times have you heard the message? How many sermons have you slept through? Especially my sermons gone so long. They repent. I mean, think about it. Sunday school. You've heard church. How many church services you attended? The scriptures. How many times you've read that? How many teachers have you heard? Have you listened to Christian radio? Do you have DVDs, CDs? Do you think books? Examples of people. We have a lot. The people of Nineveh heard a half message. All judgment, no mercy. They didn't have the full revelation. They didn't understand the, the creation and the, the, the grace that comes to Abraham to bless this nation and to come through in Moses and the Exodus and the people and the promised land and David and the patriarchs and the greater David. And, and now they didn't have that. And, and for us even, and now we understand Christ and He is the fulfillment of it all. and He was crucified for our sins, raised from the dead to show that what His message was was true. And He's promised to come again. They had, they had nothing about Jesus they didn 't know anything about it, when we look back and we 've got all of this full revelation, and they knew so li- they knew so little that they were covering animals with sackcloth. Think like that's going to help. I think God says, "Well, it's, that really doesn't help a lot, but I, that's, I appreciate the effort. I think that's, God was gracious with them, but they were doing that in ignorance. they just didn 't know. But Jesus Christ is greater than Jonah. Think about how in him is all wisdom. All wisdom is in Christ. We read the words of Christ, and there's all wisdom there. We read about Christ, and He fulfilled the Scriptures. Jonah was merely a prophet in the Scriptures. He had five words of His message recorded. Yet forty days in Nineveh will be dethr- overthrown. <laughs> Jesus had great healing power. Jesus was the one who calmed the storm. Jonah benefited from the calm storm. Jesus was the one who called the fish right to pull out the tax from. For Peter to pay, and yet Jonah was swallowed by the fish. He was like a coin compared to Jesus. Jesus had healing power, he could heal. Jonah couldn't. His atonement was complete. Jonah offered no atonement. Jesus raised from the dead. On this one, Jonah's pretty close, almost dead. And Jesus has promised his return. <laughs> Jonah didn't promise to return. But Jesus Christ is greater than Jonah. In fact, that's why we gather as a church, right? We gather because Jesus is better. And that's what we celebrate. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If the men want to come, they can do that now. It's the, it's the time we have, just even this period of Lent, just a period, how appropriate it is for us, even a time of repentance and thinking about... Um, about Easter coming, is Jesus Christ Himself. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus told us to do, to remember how much greater He is than Jonah was. And that's what we celebrate this morning. As we eat the bread and we drink the cup, it's merely an acknowledgement of us to say, yes, God, we have repented of our sins. We are believing in You. We are trusting in You. So if that's where you are this morning, celebrate and let's eat it together. We're going to sing some songs and as the bread passes around, just take hold of it and we'll partake of it later.